this Advent season. Remember the second commandment. Have no images of God. Also, it is proper in our culture to always have before us the third commandment. To bear in mind the third commandment because it, because the taking of God's name is the common tongue of our culture. We do well to remember the Old Testament here. Leviticus 24, 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Whoever blasphemes, whoever takes the name of God in vain in the Old Testament, the religion in the Old Testament, a state religion, death if you blaspheme the Lord's name. Now, we may not have state religion anymore, but we should still have this religion to honor the God, to honor the Lord's name. Because the Lord, it is still the true religion that the Lord's name, the Lord's name, when taken in vain, is the Lord himself is provoked. The Lord is provoked, his wrath provoked when his name profaned. We learn in the commandments not to treat God as a bobblehead, someone your children to color in, or a placeholder in a production, no matter how cute your wise men. And the worst is God's name is verbal filler. You know verbal filler? Oh, Lord, that is amazing. Oh, God, I can't believe that happened. God is no common, God's name is no common thing that you may use it with just simple excitement for earthly good, for earthly trouble. His name is holy. It must be treated with reverence. God's name is holy. And these truths all, all apply to Jesus. To Jesus' name. And that's really what we're learning and seeing in Acts chapter 3. That the truths of the commandments of God, the first table of the law, these truths apply to Jesus himself. For Jesus' name is power. Jesus Christ is the name of power. We'll jump right in. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. It was common in Israel, morning and evening worship, every day. The Reformation actually continued this practice. And even today, there are still some Reformed denominations that have church every day. Can you imagine going to church every day? Perhaps not. <laughs> But as the priesthood of believers, there's a great truth for us here. To begin our day every day with the Lord in prayer. To close our day every day. I cannot think of a better Christian discipline than opening and closing each day in prayer to the Lord. And at this time of prayer, it was common for those facing various adversaries to come asking for alms. Verse 2, and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. They're bringing him to this beautiful gate to ask alms for those entering in prayer. You know, prayer means mercy. There's no better time to ask for alms than in a time of prayer. And then Peter and them, they see this one. 
Seeing Peter, or excuse me, he sees Peter and John, and he's getting ready to ask them for alms. And Peter, it says, directed his gaze at him and John. And they look, and, and Peter and John said to this man, look at us. Now it's payday, right? That's what we see in verse 5. The man thinks it's payday, verse 5. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But not what, they, not what he expected. Peter said, we ain't got no money. <laughs> I have no silver and gold. But I have something greater. I have something better than money. I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. He didn't have money. He had something better. He had a name. He had a name. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. That's not very common. <laughs> That's not a common practice at the time of prayer. Matter of fact, it could be very disingenuous, actually cruel, if not true. Liz and I, when we were younger, we had a great friend who had... Uh, various uh, physical disabilities in a wheelchair and so forth. And every time a faith healer came to town, there's a church here in town that always had these faith healers come in the summer. And every time a faith healer would come in town, she would go. And we begged her not to go. Don't go. Please don't go. Because every time we had to comfort her for months as she entered in depression when the huckster left town. But not here. This name is real power. In the name of Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. This is the unexpected. It is the power by the name of Jesus Christ. The power of the name of Jesus Christ. That's the truth we want to explore this morning. The power of the name of Christ. We have three things we want to look at in the name of Jesus Christ. The power of Christ. First, Jesus' name is worthy of glory. Jesus' name is worthy of glory to be worshipped by us. Secondly, Jesus' name must be rightly confessed. We must confess rightly Jesus' name. His name to be known by us in truth. And lastly... We must recognize that Jesus' name is the only name by which men are saved. There is, name, there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And these three points, Jesus' name is worthy of glory. His name is to be rightly confessed. And his name is the only name by which men must be saved. Jesus Christ's name is the name of power. And so we first see that Jesus' name is worthy of all glory. Verse 8 and the lame man, no longer lame, verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, the praise of God is very common. It's common to praise God. It it's, should be ordinary in the church. I pray it's ordinary for us to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's an ordinary expectation that we worship God, but the worship of God is no ordinary work. It's an extraordinary thing to worship God. That is, God works in us the power to worship, the ability to worship. He transforms the lame. He transforms the lame to walk by faith. 
Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. There is something important in this walking. First of all, the man walked because he was obedient. He was obedient to the command. And there is trust there in that obedience, is there not? He actually trusts that these men, that the name of Jesus Christ, he trusts that the name of Jesus Christ is going to make him walk. There is truth and trust in this name. And in obedience, he gets up and walks. And notice what he does with his walking. He walks after the church and he walks in praise. He walks to glorify the Lord. This walk is the walk of faith. It's the walk of new life. It's our walk. We who were once blind, but now in the name of Christ, we see and we live to glorify the Lord. And we find here that Jesus' name is worthy of all glory, of all glory, and also must be glorified by all. Verse 10, and, and they recognized him, the people. They recognized this one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple and they asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement, amazement at what had happened to him. It was a public event and this public event carried news of the miracle throughout town. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the town, really, the people, the people are coming and they're utterly astounded. They're coming, they're running. Look, they ran together. The town's running. It's a picture of the town coming together at Solomon's portico. To see this great thing, this miracle created a buzz. And many came. And that's really what we'll see in the book of Acts. These sign gifts that we will see in the book of Acts, they always serve one purpose. They don't serve wonder and amazement. They don't serve somebody's pocketbook <laughs> like you see on TBN today. No, they serve a purpose. They serve the gospel. They serve the preaching of the gospel. Just like the gifts of tongues and healing serve the preaching of Christ's name, so too here. Look, Peter recognizes all these people are drawing to Peter to this, to this miracle. And Peter saw it, verse 12, and addressed the people. Now it's time to preach. And he preaches. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? Peter saying, don't look at us. It's not us. You recognize when you read the Bible, right, that these Bible characters tend to be infatuated with ministers, right? They overvalue prophets and ministers and even angels when they appear, right? There's an overestimation and overvalue. I think we have the same trouble today. There's a subtle temptation toward the personality cult, Especially in America, it's a very strong temptation toward the personality cult where we overvalue and esteem our ministers. And a lot of ministers will take advantage of the opportunity for power and prestige. Pope Innocent III, while counting the treasury of the church, counting the gold and silver of the church, said to Thomas Aquinas, Look, Thomas, look at the church. We can no longer say, Silver and gold we have none. And Aquinas responded, Yes, but neither can we say, Rise and walk. 
When the church becomes about the church, when the ministry of the church is about the glory of a minister or the power of the ministry and no longer about the glory of Christ, no longer will, have the, no longer will the church have any ability to speak truth for no one will hear. We must hold to John the Baptist's dictum. John the Baptist's dictum. I must what? Decrease. But Christ must increase. May that be the truth of our church. We will decrease that Christ increase. That's the proper confession of Christ in his name. And Peter rightly confesses that. And then he goes on, verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified, look at that, glorified his servant. Man, I would underline that. Glorified his servant, Jesus. Peter goes right to the Old Testament to prove Christ. He goes right to the Old Testament because the Old Testament's all about Jesus. Look at that. He says the patriarchs. Glorified, that is the patriarchs, worshipped Jesus. Let that sink in. The foundation of Christendom, the foundation of the Bible is laid here on these patriarchs. God first promised the patriarchs the gospel. We call it the covenant of grace founded on these patriarchs. And these patriarchs thousands and thousands of years before the birth of Jesus worshipped Jesus Christ. They glorified the Son. Therefore, they had to rightly know about him. They had to rightly confess Jesus' name way back then. Rightly believing and confessing Jesus. Rightly believing and worshiping Jesus. Thousands of years ago, the patriarchs. It's amazing. This means that Jesus Christ's name has always been the name to be known among God's people. It is the name we've always needed to know. We must know this name. We must rightly confess this name. That's true faith. The true faith rightly, rightly understands. We have a certain knowledge. Faith, Heidelberg says, faith is a certain, a certain knowledge. We hold as true this certain knowledge. And this knowledge is history. You hear me a lot say, Christians are historians. You ever notice how Christians love history? <laughs> Especially Reformed Christians, a lot of us really love history. Well, we love history because we're historians. Look at our faith, it's historic. Our faith is based on history. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under who? A historical character. Suffering under Pontius Pilate. His name enters into our creeds. His name, Pontius Pilate's name, enters into the creeds of Christendom because he's historic. It's history. we got to know that history, people. got to teach it to your children. Our children need to know the history of Jesus. Because the history, the story, the drama of Christ gives us our doctrine. We don't just pull our doctrine out of the ether. Oh, this is great. Well, some people do. This is a good doctrine. Let's just, no, but our doctrine has to flow from the drama. The story has to give us what we believe. It is the history of Christ that we must know. We must know the history of Christ, and we must know the Christ of faith. 
That's the true faith. And we see the history, and he goes right to the history. He goes to the patriarchs, but not only the patriarchs. He explains their present history. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. He was going to let him go, but no, you denied. That's history. But notice how the history flows into theology, or see how Peter grabs doctrine from this story, but you denied the holy and righteous one. That's theology. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That's history. And you killed the author of life. That's doctrine. You killed the, do the, the author of life. And we see here that we need to confess the truth about Christ. We not only need to know his history, but we need to know our theology. We need to know the story of Christ on earth. The story of Christ on earth was crucified for your sins, was dead, buried, and raised again that you might be the righteousness of God. And you need to know the story of Christ in heaven, that he lives to uphold and keep you a sinner to uphold and keep you a believing sinner that nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can separate you from Christ. That's a theology worth following. Nothing can separate you from Christ. Think of the worst sin you've ever committed. What's that sin that you feel that like you have violated God that he will never forgive you? That unpardonable act. Paul says, nothing can keep you. No power, no principality. Not even your own power, not even in your own ability. Christ says, I hold you in my hand and nothing will take you from it. For my hand and the Father's hand is powerful and no one can snatch you from us. If he holds you by faith... Heaven is yours, for he has conquered. He has conquered. That's the point. You haven't conquered anything. You need a conqueror whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Here we see the power of his name. He, he became a servant, fulfilled the covenant of works, was put to death in our place. He served perfectly. Eternal life became his. And there he destroyed evil. He is the Lord of life. He's the conqueror, the alpha and omega of our salvation. And there is power in his name. There is power in the name of Jesus. Verse 16. And his name. By faith in his name. He has made this man strong whom you, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. The name of Christ healed this man. He was healed by a proper profession. He believed in Christ. When they said, stand and rise in the name of Christ, that man believed Christ. He believed in his power. He believed in a resurrection power that overcomes sin and death in all the disabilities of the earth. And we learn here that faith through Jesus means that our faith cannot come to Christ unless our faith comes to Christ alone. 
We must right, rightly confess his name that we might rightfully worship him because his name is the only name under heaven by which men might be saved. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. They weren't moved by faith, but they crucified the Lord of glory. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. Look at that. We got the patriarchs. Patriarchs were consumed with worshiping Christ. Now the prophets... All the prophets, he said, are consumed by the mouth of all the prophets. That's the Old Testament, basically. Patriarch and prophets. Who's left? By the mouth of the Bible, the Old Testament. It all proclaims that Christ would suffer, and he's fulfilled this. The prophets rightly confessed his name. They rightly foretold of his work. They rightly confess that his name alone is the name by which men might be saved. Verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. That's beautiful. That's the free offer of the gospel. Think about how great the gospel is here. This is the heart of the gospel right here. These people did the most grievous thing in, in human history. They did the worst thing in human history. They killed the Lord of life. Think about that. They killed the Lord of life, and Peter says, Repent, that all your sins might be washed away. I think that's beautiful because if the gospel can wash away the sins, the worst act ever created and done in human history, then surely his blood can wash away our sins. Can it not? If his blood is powerful enough for these men and these rulers who killed the Lord of glory, is it not also the power to wash away your sins? Verse 20, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. There's that name again. The times of refreshing, those are the times that the prophets in the Old Testament Proclaim that there will be times of refreshing. That's the joy of our salvation. The joy of your salvation is comfort, coming. It's Jesus Christ, your only comfort in life and in death. Jesus Christ, by faith in Christ, your faithful Savior, who's delivered you from destruction and has given you the gift of eternal life. In that name is times of refreshing, the joy of our salvation, a new day, a new life. In the name, the name of our Lord, in his name is our heavenly reward. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all these things which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Christ has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. That's the confession here. That is, that is the place, of, that's the theology. The place of our salvation is in the name of Christ in heaven. And our hearts must be open to receive his word and to receive him by faith. Verse 21 or verse 22. Moses said, are you kidding me? So we got the patriarchs were all consumed <laughs> with Christ. The prophets and now the greatest prophet of them all, Moses. Who's left? David. We're not going to get to David today, but if you've been following me, that was the whole point of Peter's first sermon, that David was all about Jesus. Now Moses, everyone's all about this Christ. Now the Jews were all about Moses. 
The Jews are still all about Moses, and there's a lot of Christians who are still all about Moses and still all about Israel because they're a little confused. They like to separate the Old and the New Testament. It's called dispensationalism. It's completely wrong because the Old Testament's all about Jesus. There's no separation. Peter wanted his people to rightly confess Christ. He wanted his people to find Christ that they might find heaven. And no matter where you are today in life, when you hear the scriptures, you must hear Christ because he's the master that God appointed. He's the master that Moses said to listen to. So when Jesus was baptized, what were God's words to us, to the disciples at Jesus' baptism? Moses' words. Listen to him. He is the prophet who has come. And here the church has recognized that there is in the third commandment more than honoring the name of God. We confess the third commandment means more than just honoring the name of God, but we must also honor the revelation of his name. And his name is revealed in the word. We must rightly Handle the word of God. We must honor the very word of God because the Bible calls the Bible the very breath of God. What you hold in your hands is the very breath of God. Some traditions honor it by walking the Bible up that everyone may see and they honor it. We elevate our pulpit to honor the word. That's well and good, I guess. But the right way, of right way of honoring God's word is, is handling it rightly and seeing Christ in all the scriptures. That's the right way of handling it. You see, God is all about his word. And he here says, anyone who despises the word, anyone who despises Moses' word should be condemned. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet. That's Jesus. Listen to him. Right, that's Moses' words, Jesus, God's words. God requotes Moses at his baptism. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the, pre from the people. You don't listen to the word of God. You don't handle the word rightly. If you contaminate the word, destruction. We learn... In the Bible, that there is nothing more precious to God in this world, nothing more precious to God in this world than his holy word. Why? Why is God in love with the Bible? Because the Bible is about his only begotten son. God loves the Bible because the Bible is about the name of Jesus Christ and it is a name of power we learn in the Bible that it is not only about Christ but the, these are the days of Christ verse 24 and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel man even Samuel they're all about Jesus and those who came after him also proclaimed these days <coughs> we're in the days of salvation we're in the days of finding Christ in the Bible, Christ the center of life. We are in the days of finding power in the name of Christ because his name is power. His name is gospel. 
But the gospel is the power of God and your salvation. That power is in the name of Christ. His name is gospel. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The, the promise made to the Jews and their descendants is the promise made to those who today who are far off. It's the promise of Jesus Christ. What Peter is showing us here in this verse is what Paul t- teaches us in Galatians chapter 3. When Paul says that all that Abraham will bless the families of the earth through his offspring. Through his offspring. And who is that offspring of Abraham? Who is the offspring of Abraham that blesses the nations? Is it Israel? Is it Moses? David? America. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the unifier of the Old and the New Testament. Jesus Christ binds the Old and the New Testament together. Jesus Christ binds heaven to earth. So that in earthly things, the power of heaven comes. In an earthly meal, the power of heaven comes. In an earthly baptism, the power of heaven comes. Be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is my body and my blood, true food and true drink. It is in the name of Christ that you receive these things. Because the name of Christ is power. Christ's name is the fountain and beginning of all Christian blessings. He is the fountain, the beginning, and the end of every blessing that you have in Christ. It is no wonder that we are called what today? Christians. You bear the name of Christ. You bear the name of Christ that you might rightly confess his name and that you might glorify and worship him above all things. And you bear that name because it is the only name under heaven by which we are saved now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.